Game Cool Books, Episode 50. You need to ask more questions. Just as the previous chapter closed with Lyra about to tell her story, this one, Screen Language, opens with the words, Tell me again. Back in Will's world, Dr. Malone has just recounted her version of the story to her colleague. The actual telling of the parallel stories falls in between these two chapters and is left to the reader's imagination, amply helped out by the telling of the story as a whole, which we are in the midst of reading. The hint of a metafictional structural conceit is here quite strongly suggested by the break between chapters. The telling of stories is integral to the story, but it doesn't need to take up room in the telling. Rather, we want to get on with what happens next. So, while Lyra tells her story to Serafina Pekala, focusing on certain aspects of recent events concerning Will and the knife and the world of Chittagatsi, a fantastic story told to a fantastic person, Dr. Malone has been passing on what she's learned from her meetings with Lyra to a much less receptive audience. What seems like nonsense to Dr. Payne Mary suspects is actually profound knowledge. Based on her interview with Lyra firsthand, she's able to make the connection between their shadows and Lyra's dust. Whereas Dr. Payne, getting the same information from secondhand, finds the summary unilluminating. I think we're being shown two contrasting approaches to science. One, as the first-hand experience of new questions and discoveries represented by Mary, and the other, a skeptical process of fitting that information into an existing framework, paradigm, and premises represented by Oliver Payne. While they should be complementary and dedicated to the research into and dissemination of ever-improving understandings of the nature of things, we can see how these two modes of doing the work of science can run into difficulties when the gulf between them is too great. The distinction isn't between science and humanities, then, but between two ways of telling stories, for science, too, is about giving an account. And much of the difference, at least in this scene, turns on the personalities and lived experience of the interlocutors. So while a whole book has been written on the science of Philip Pullman by Mary and John Gribben, and that's fine as far as providing an overview of topics like the Northern Lights and their real-world analogs, I would say this chapter on its own, and in the context of the whole story, reveals far more deeply what Pullman is up to in his use of scientific material. We can see how far Mary is here from the charismatic delivery of Lord Azriel in his presentation to the scholars of Jordan, though she does her best to convey something of her wonder at beholding Lyra's own most extraordinary display in the cave and her using her compass thing though she doesn't mention the fortune-telling aspect of that. The narrator will remind us of it later in the chapter. Mary does evoke Lyra's mastery of the state of mind, 
represented by the passage from Keats on negative capability. She knew it, she knew it intimately, Mary says, which I suspect is the only possible way to really know it, as opposed to just knowing about it. And still, all of her pain is unmoved. Since returning from Geneva, he has been impatient, skeptical, preoccupied. She goes on, throwing out how remarkable it is for elementary particles to be capable of communicating as if they were conscious. She appeals to his own experiments with the skulls, which might have led us to expect a very different character from Oliver Payne. When Mary told Lyra about him doing those sorts of experiments, we might have got the sense that he was a far more intuitive and less pedantic sort of person. As if exasperated, pain demands more structure. Is she confirming what we know or telling us something new? And Mary insists it's both. She proposes a hypothesis that something happened 30 or 40,000 years ago which amplifies the effects of dust at the anthropic level. And that word anthropic might refer to Wheeler's anthropic principle in physics. She says, evolution made the human brain the ideal vehicle for consciousness. Paine objects at once, why suddenly at that time? But this is to shift the grounds of the discussion. They're not paleontologists. Mary is only speculating, seeing what is possible, whereas he is stuck on the curious detail of the timing which he himself noticed in testing the skulls. The other aspect of this story is the involvement of the police. He points out, though Mary seems nonplussed by it, she thought that was just politics or something. She tells him they were looking for a boy seen in the company with the girl. She's more unsettled by something else, though, that they knew about their research, and they asked but we don't learn what they asked, for at that moment the phone announces a visitor. Sir somebody something. Maybe they'd asked about something Lyra had told her, or about the Perry expedition, or even about the knife. We don't know. For Payne changes the subject again and explains why he's so preoccupied. He's off. The job in Geneva is waiting for him. He has to take it. When Mary says, that's the end of this, then, it's hard not to hear more in that than the end of their professional work together. There's a note of hurt or betrayal at whatever it is, this friendship or even a romantic relationship being ended. For him, the stories he's been hearing are all too crazy. He has to think of his career, and he expects her to understand that, not about skulls. And figurines. The tension of this moment is modified with the arrival of a third character on stage, so to speak. Perhaps it's lessened for the two of them, but it's heightened for the reader because we know how dangerous and duplicitous this Sir Charles really is. His odiously smooth and entitled manner is on full display as he alludes to the results of their funding application, and to his own role as civil servant. 
his airy expertise in scientific policy, his chumming, chummy contacts in the field. It's all as if he's in charge of a meeting. Restraints such as the Official Secrets Act are, in his opinion, silly things. This appears to be a real law, or a series of laws, though I only made a cursory search about it. And probably, when Sir Charles calls it silly, he's doing that British Lytotes understatement to an extreme degree, and actually making a threat, as Mary will point out later. In short, he submits himself as an unofficial advisor, out of an excuse to get to see their work, which, to be blunt, he says, he does not expect to see get its grant renewed. Again, to be frank, he says, he foresees that without an advocate, the peer review, in principle, will prove to be impossible for them to pass in practice. Picking up on a part of what he's saying, Mary feels like a drowning sailor thrown a life belt. Good grief, she says. But pain picks up on the rest. What would we have to do, he asks. It seems Geneva is not entirely occupying his attention anymore. We're told a flicker of complicity passes between him and Sir Charles. It's another of those physical evidences of the metaphysical, which pop up so frequently in Pullman. There is a direction Sir Charles wants to see the research take, and he can probably secure them extra money if it does. Mary is outraged, but Oliver insists there's no harm listening, and gets Sir Charles to go on. Her snide reference to Geneva prompts Sir Charles to remark that it's an excellent place, lots of scope, lots of money, and maybe we'll recall that Geneva in Lyra's world and Sir Charles's world is the seat of the magisterium. Suddenly, Payne's going there is not settled at all, but fluid. So much for more structure. They had hospitably offered Lyra coffee in the previous chapter. Now, Payne offers Sir Charles the same, who accepts with the air of a satisfied cat. He sits down again. Dr. Malone looked at him clearly for the first time. She saw a man in his late sixties, prosperous, confident, beautifully dressed, used to the very best of everything, used to moving among powerful people and whispering in important ears. Oliver was right. He did want something, and they wouldn't get his support unless they satisfied him. She folded her arms. Meanwhile... <laughs> Oliver comes back with a mug, saying, Sorry, it's rather primitive. And there's a lot bound up in that word, all sorts of socially self-aware, self-deprecation, and colonial history, perhaps. At any rate, with the niceties observed, Sir Charles returns to business. He confidently expects discoveries in the field of consciousness including, maybe especially, its manipulation. How this is related to their work with physics may not be obvious at first, but he refers us to the many worlds idea, 
citing Everett in 1957. And though in his world it would have been the Barnard Stokes heresy, this Everett paper is, like the Official Secrets Act, a real-world document. I can put a link to it for anyone interested. Together with Wheeler, the anthropic principle, Ev follows in line of students of quantum mechanics uh, and follows the lines laid down by Niels Bohr, which are generally distinguished by their emphasis on the role of the observer in scientific measurement, and by extension, in the measured phenomena and in nature itself. Perhaps we need to know less about this, though, more about Lord Boreal's own ambitions. To understand why he might promise defense funding for their dark matter research, it seems he's already been planning some sort of military expedition with Mrs. Coulter into the world of Chittagatse to recover the subtle knife. And I think I read somewhere that Everett, in real life, actually went into uh, the defense sector after he published his uh, thesis in 57. Now, with a last dismissal of wearisome application procedures and laws, but one mustn't be naughty about it, he says, Sir Charles, a.k.a. Lord Boreal, comes to his final point about the child. And here there's some more evidence that, as we were speculating earlier, Sir Charles has been either directing or at least cooperating with the men who were pursuing Will for his father's letters. He's still in touch with the intelligence services, and he happens to know that the antique scientific instrument in Lyra's possession is surely stolen. How true! He's the one who stole it! And that her companion, a boy about the same age, twelve or so, is wanted for murder. He's curiously vague about the age of these children, as well as about the moral question whether a child that age, whatever that age is, would be capable of murder, per se. The fact is, Will killed someone. For all his distaste for tabloid publicity, the melodrama of Sir Charles's delivery here is palpable, and Mary mocks him for it as soon as he departs making these not-so-subtle threats, she said. The story seems much more interested in the contrast between Mary's mode of inquiry and Sir Charles's delivery, with her arms folded and him beaming in his Panama hat. Then the story is interested in giving an exact answer to our curiosities about how exactly he knows all this, how involved he was in the break-in at Will's house, for instance. But more and more, that break-in and the pursuit do start to feel kind of like they might be his style. And here in how superior Mary is to Oliver Payne. You're not taken in by that old creep, she says. It's not an offer, it's an ultimatum. And again, there's that line about the not-so-subtle threats accompanied by a for God's sake. It's not... Or, gone on from good grief now to God's sake. She's true to the principles of her work, while he is seduced by the promise of its crooked practice. Oliver Payne tries to persuade Mary to moderate her stance, arguing that they'll just take it over if she stands firm. 
But defense, Mary erupts once more. For God's sake, that's tantamount to killing people and manipulating their conscience. With cringeworthy sycophancy, Payne recurs to his fatalistic attitude. They'll do it anyway, but maybe they can still influence it in a better direction. <laughs> he goes back on his decision to go to Geneva. That's not settled, now that they're on to something. So he's been persuaded by Sir Charles, not by her. Their confrontation breaks down into splitting hairs between saying and hinting, until finally he comes out and tells her that even if she refuses Sir Charles's offer, he will take it. Mary sees at once that the mercenary impulse allowing him to cut through all her moral quandaries and all the wonderful mysteries opened up by Lyra's last visit, it's, it's as simple as him getting to be director and all the perks that go with that. Good idea, she says. Go ahead. She's off. It stinks. And she silences him with a look. But as soon as she's gone, he picks up the phone. I think it was what the archaeologist did right after Will had visited and asked about the pale-haired journalist. Now, just before midnight, in fact, I think I mentioned earlier that this phrase connects Mary's story really closely with Will's at the start of the book. Uh, we see her coming back to the lab. Whereas Will was defending his home from intruders, is on the run, now Mary is the intruder here, defending her work from those who would misuse it. If Sir Charles was like a cat, satisfied cat, she tells herself she should soothe the new security guard like a dog, though he's the one who should be explaining what he's doing there, by rights. She says she has an experiment running which she needs to check periodically. Whether seeking a reason to forbid her or just exercising his power, he drags out the process before finally letting her go through. That elderly porter that she remembers had been one of the few comforting connections between Lyra's Oxford and this strange Oxford. But with the replacement of the elderly porter by this bureaucratic security personnel, it looks like the worlds are diverging more and more. Once back in the lab, Mary's technology is dated for us by her use of a floppy disk, as quaint as the old porter himself is to the contemporary reader. Her work on it, though, is nearly a miracle. We're told it's half logic, half guesswork, half this program she's been working on, and it's as difficult as getting three halves to make one whole. In fact, doing something like that is practically like contemplating the mystery of the Trinity. At first, Mary is intensely self-conscious, probably like when she was trying to explain her visitor to Oliver Payne, even though she's alone now. She's with the skeptical side of herself. But the strangeness of this moment overcomes that feeling of restraint, for knowing that without using any word processing, she's managed to bypass the computer's operating system entirely, and still the formatting of the language on the screen is legible to her. 
but is not hers. The machine has provided the structure for her message to exist there in it. It's a weird kind of circularity. Or perhaps, as we'll see, someone else is responsible for this. She felt the hairs begin to stir on the back of her neck, and she became aware of the whole building around her, the corridors dark, the machines idling, various experiments running automatically, computers monitoring tests and recording the results, the air conditioning sampling and adjusting the humidity and the temperature, all the ducts and pipework and cabling that were the arteries and the nerves of the building awake and alert, almost conscious, in fact. I think we're reminded here of the way that this story, too, is a kind of experiment. It's almost as if the character in the book becomes aware that she is taking part in it. This other mind, of course, might very nearly be the author's or equally our own. But anyhow, she tried again. She types another message, and in the middle of it, before she had even finished the sentence, the cursor raced across to the right of the screen and printed, Ask a Question. So we see her thinking about doing with words what she's done before with a state of mind. And sure enough, words come back in response. But not just words. It felt as if she'd stepped on a space that wasn't there. The imagery conveying the strangeness of this interview is reminiscent of what we see when Lyra is learning to read the alethiometer for the first time. Mary feels like she's moved into an impossible space. She both is and is not in this moment there. The answers to her questions lash themselves across the right side of the screen. They're breaking the rules of at least the way that English is printed from left to right. Um, the typography in the text matches this strangeness. It reproduces these answers in block coding script capitals offset to the right of the pages. The words are very brief. Yes, 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 evidently correct. But you need to ask more questions, they say, and answer terse response to each of her enormous inquiries into the nature of shadows, dust, dark matter, consciousness. <laughs> um, what's at stake here uh, seems to be that her hypothesis is correct, but she needs to ask further. It's not the information, but the process that counts. And not just the process, but the person interpreting it. The consciousness communicating it, or striving to. To Mary, the truth of all of this is impossible. It overthrows her education, her habits, her sense of herself as a scientist, which shrieks at her, so another voice speaking within her mind. This is a truly Socratic moment of learning, of knowing how much she doesn't know. And perhaps it's even a conversion moment to get out of certain Socratic paradoxes, or at least to provide another way of understanding them. And uh, 
if it is a conversion, it's a kind of philosophical and, and not a very religious one. Because on the screen, with these words from some other mind, she's trying to wrap her mind around, she asks, but what are you? The answer, angels. And we're told that though Mary was brought up Catholic, and was once a nun, she now has no faith left. Still, she knows about angels. She knew about angels. And now I think we're seeing her get to know them intimately in that first-hand way that Lyra represented for her. We're told, St. Augustine had said, Angel is the name of their office, not of their nature. If you seek the name of their nature, it is spirit. If you seek the name of their office, it is angel. From what they are, spirit. From what they do, angel. And there's another one of those sentences that has those nested semicolons that we're so fond of in Pullman. Um, now, that passage apparently is found in the Catholic Catechism. Um, it's quoted from St. Augustine's uh, Sermons on the Psalms. Um, but it doesn't really satisfy her anymore because it takes faith to understand that sort of paradox. In more scientific terminology, it answers her next question about what angels are made of. Shadow matter? Dust? Structures? Complexifications? Yes, it says. And then, on shadow matter is what we have called spirit. From what we are, spirit. From what we do, matter. Matter and spirit are one. So, it seems to her that they'd been listening to her thoughts. The answer comes next, that they intervened in human evolution, and the reason for vengeance in the middle of her typing, now she interrupts herself. Oh, rebel angels. And she goes on. Kind of stream of consciousness typing here. After the war in heaven, Satan and the Garden of Eden. But it isn't true, is it? And this program or not program apparently can italicize. True is italic. And then this cuts off further speculation. It seems that she has properly understood, at least as far as within her lights she's capable of, that this is actually true. This protest that it isn't true, is it, is just what Lyra had said to Lord Asriel about the story of the fall in Genesis. And the story of the fall of the rebel angels, of course, is elaborated much more in Pullman's great favorite, uh, Milton's Paradise Lost. Um, the interruption, though, comes in a very curious way. It tells her to find the girl and the boy, to waste no more time. Apparently these speculations are a waste of time. Uh, she asks why. You must play the serpent. So that is a clear reference to the Garden of Eden story. She doesn't ask more about it for now. She simply asks, where? And the longest, uh, maybe the second longest, I'm not sure, message comes with the details 
for what she needs to do um, before she goes. Yeah, so the next series of answers are quite a bit more detailed, but they are also final uh, because she has to get going. She now feels that she is beyond doubt and belief. She feels that something had happened. Um, she feels galvanized. A word from the name of the scientist who's famous for his discovery that the nerve impulses contain electric charge. And maybe that's the sort of manipulation that Mary was against when it was being imposed from above, but now it's put in quite a different light by this, this communication that has happened here. So she formats and smashes and burns the remains of the program and the wiring plan and the machine itself. Maybe this is a sort of fantasy that uh, anyone who's worked in an office would be familiar with, or at least anyone who's seen that movie, Office Space. The uh, knowledge of the program, of course, is still there for Oliver Payne to work on it, but uh, the special hardware is destroyed. Again, that distinction between what is physical and what is perhaps metaphysical. In terms of practice, there's this little moment when she decides to take some things with her, though. One of them we're not told about yet, but one we are, that she takes the poster of the I Ching from the back of the door. Um, yeah, Some papers from a drawer go into her briefcase. Um, but as she gets escorted out, um, we see a kind of, uh, I don't know, a joke version of this deep sort of communication, because the security guard, of course, is talking on his phone. Uh, one of our favorite activities these days. Then we get the final brief scene of this chapter, where Mary has to find the location of Sutherland Avenue on a map of the city, not, not knowing this part of Oxford. And that little detail seems to invite the reader to do the same. If we weren't aware before that this, or say the location of the window that is given uh, coordinate points in the letter from Will's father, if we weren't sure that these were actually real places that we could look up, um, we're given a sort of picture of what that would look like here. And when she arrives, she finds the night cool and silent and still, it puts us back a little bit in that surreal mood from when she was sitting in the empty lab or even more before, back at the start of the book, because we're about to get the recapitulation of what happens to Will in chapter one. She feels like she might be dreaming, but, but she's more self-conscious that maybe this is all an elaborate joke at her expense. But at any rate, she's committed now. She's got her rucksack ready for her journey like the ones she used to take in Scotland and the Alps. She abrades herself as ridiculous and foolish for thinking about taking to the hills if things go bad, but what looks like escapism is actually the embrace of grave responsibility on Mary's part. She sees these strange, childlike trees that Will had seen, the narrator tells us. But... The scene is now transformed for us by the addition of a small square tent, the sort electricians put up when they're making repairs, and the unmarked van watching. From it comes a policeman, 
He's very young looking. He's got the street light full on his face. It's odd how in these moments when worlds are crossed, Pullman seems fascinated by the details of light and physical appearance. It's like when Azriel and Mrs. Coulter are talking and are observed by Lyra at the end of the first book, or like Rudascotti is traveling between worlds in the company of the angels. The policeman has orders not to let anyone near. But Mary, of course, is not just anyone. She's from the Department of Physical Sciences and here to do the preliminary survey. And more politely than the private security goon, the policeman nevertheless asks for proof that she should show who she is. And there's a humorous pause while she digs out her purse from her rucksack. We get another little bit of serendipity to go with her lifelong preparation of mountaineering, which we're only just now told about. For among the items that she took from the drawer earlier was an expired library card of Oliver Payne's, which she modifies using her own passport photo to read Dr. Olive Payne. He asks about Mary Malone, and she says that she's a colleague of hers. She's probably in bed if she has any sense. <laughs> Joke at her own expense here. Apparently, her position has been terminated. The policeman says he had orders to detain her if she tried to go there. And naturally, although he's a bit shy about this, he thought, seeing a woman, that you might be her. <laughs> Nervous and wanting to talk, he is again a lovely contrast to the overbearing security guard at the lab. Mary, of course, is exactly who he thought she was. He, she hopes that he wouldn't see her hands shaking. Uh, she goes into the tent with no idea what she would find. She might be expecting a archaeological dig or a body, a meteorite. But uh, she is following the orders of that other mind. Destroyed the equipment, deceived the guardian. But now there's nothing in her life, despite what it says that she's been preparing for this her whole life, there's nothing that would prepare her for that square yard or so in midair, or for the silent sleeping city by the sea that she found when she stepped through it. So she doesn't know yet, perhaps, what uh, it meant by um, being protected uh, and the specters will not touch her. Um, but in a way that makes her even more uh, similar to Will on his first entry into the world of Chittagatsi, um, she's allowed to, in a sense, recapture that uh, mode of thinking um, which Lyra's intimately uh, knowledgeable of from her reading of the Alethiometer. And with it, Mary, in this sense, is also allowed to recapture a certain uh, innocence in the midst of her uh, deep scientific experience. So, we won't see Mary Malone uh, again in this book, I don't think, but uh, we will pick up with her story once we come to the third book um, in a few more weeks. Thanks for listening.